This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 19, 1997. Silk Air Flight 185, a Boeing 737 with 104 people on board, has just taken off from Jakarta, Indonesia on its way to Singapore. The plane has reached cruising altitude at 35,000 feet and finished a discussion with air traffic control. Eight seconds later on the next radar sweep, the tower notices the plane is 400 feet lower than it should be. 24 seconds later, the plane has lost 15,000 feet of altitude. Seconds later, the plane crashes into the Musi River Delta at nearly the speed of sound. Sadly, nobody survives the impact. Investigators are baffled as they try to piece together the small remains of the plane. Two agencies investigate the incident and come up with different conclusions. What brought down Silk Air Flight 185? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. I want to give a quick disclaimer here. At the intro there, I said, what brought down Silk Air 185? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Just to be clear, there are two different conclusions from two different agencies <laughs> here. So I don't know if we're going to like break the 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 impasse here. There, I, I have we mm, most of the world accepts one of the conclusions, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. Uh, only one country accepts the other one. And uh, we'll we'll get into that as we uh, talk about this episode. You will find out what happened. It just you might have a choice. It's a choose your own episode, but not really because we're just going to go over everything, and <laughs> you get mm-hmm. to you get to listen. You get to make your own decision. Yeah, about what you want to listen to. Before we get into it, as always, I want to remind you, follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, we recently had that episode with the uh, planes that collided at the Detroit airport. And a lot of people were confused about the, the runway layout and the path the, the, that the planes took. We post it on social media. It makes it much more clear. There's a diagram that shows you exactly where they were going and uh, what happened. Those runways and those taxiways can be a little confusing. Probably not as necessary for this episode. It's <laughs> a, a lot more straightforward. But still, give us a follow anyway. Silk Air Flight 185, like I said, it's a passenger flight from Sokarno Hada International Airport in Jakarta, Indonesia, to the Singapore Changi Airport on December 19th, 1997. Side note, it's weird to say like Jakarta, Indonesia, and then just Singapore. It's like like a person with one name, right? It's like Madonna or something. It's like Singapore. It's it's a city and a country, kind of. Does the Vatican have an airport? I bet it does. It has a helicopter pad. I'm sure they have, they've got to have like a private airport, but I don't know. That's a good question. I'll be flying into the Vatican t- <laughs> day. Vatican City has no airport, apparently, but Vatican City has a heliport in the western corner. Okay. Apparently, it's physically impossible to fit an airport into Vatican City. <laughs> so that would explain it. it. Into Now it is, but in the future. Yeah, that's true. It could change. They could go to space. They could go straight up. That's true, but I'm sure... That's going to have like exhaust, right? Like normally when oh, we yeah. launch ships, yeah, it's like yeah. way off in the distance because it like has all that exhaust that comes out. I from guess it. M- my dreams of 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 astronaut popes <laughs> won't. Go- It'll still die, happen. Die there. They'll just have to go to Rome or something to, to yeah. get to space. Okay, sorry. That's a dis- I, I, let's get on no, topic. That that's what the people come here for. They're coming for the Chris insight <laughs> about that, space that- pope. <laughs> Okay, so... So the captain of this flight was Su Wei Ming, who was 45 years old, had about 7,173 flight hours. And the first officer was Duncan Ward, who was 23 years old, had about 2,500 flight hours. And like I said, the aircraft was a Boeing 737, less than a year old, pretty new, manufactured in February of 97. So it was only, you know, 10 months old. Had about 2,238 hours on it and 1,306 cycles. And there were five flight attendants and 97 passengers on board as well. So the crew arrived in Jakarta the same day after flying a leg from Singapore. The flight operated normally. The crew made their preparations for the return leg back to Singapore. At 3.37 p.m. Jakarta time, flight 185 took off from runway 25 right with the captain at the controls. They were cleared to 35,000 feet and to head directly to the Palembang VOR. And that's just like a waypoint that they were cleared out to. Uh Ten minutes later, as the crew was passing through 24,000 feet, they requested to fly directly to the party waypoint. Uh, Maybe this is one of those things that I'll uh, I'll put on social media showing you where these waypoints are. That way you know uh, Uh where they are. I'll get a little map. I want to know where the party waypoint is. (laughs) Oh, it's (laughs) (laughs) P-A-R-D-I. I I I was like, what's he talking about? Oh, 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 P-A-R-D-I, party. Okay, sorry. (laughs) No, no, I, I didn't even think about that. So they were instructed to stand by and continue on their current path. Then six minutes later, the crew reported reaching 35,000 feet, and they were cleared directly to uh, Pardi, P-A-R-D-I, 
And they were supposed to report when they were a beam to Palembang. And a beam means they were like at a right angle to like directly at a 90 degree angle away from it. Okay. At 4.10 p.m., the controller informed Flight 185 that they were a beam to Palembang and instructed Flight 185 to contact Singapore Control when at party. The crew acknowledges this, and that was the last transmission from the crew. And just incidentally, it was the first officer that they were talking to. It's the last time they hear from anyone. It's the first officer acknowledging air traffic control. Okay. Jakarta air traffic control radar showed the airplane was still at 35,000 feet at 4.12 and 9 seconds. But on the next radar return, 8 seconds later, the radar indicated the flight was 400 feet below where it should be. A rapid descent followed, and the last recorded radar return on this flight was at 4.12 and 41 seconds, and it showed the aircraft was at 19,500 feet. The airplane broke up in flight and crashed into the Musi River Delta about 50 kilometers north-northeast of Palembang at 4.13 p.m., and 50 kilometers is about 30 miles, roughly. The aircraft was completely destroyed and severely fragmented on impact. The wreckage penetrated deep into the river bottom. The destruction was such that mainly small mangled parts were recovered from the river. Parts of the rudder skin and the outboard sections of the horizontal stabilizer were recovered on land. The furthest was about four kilometers from the impact site, so about two and a half miles. Everyone on board the aircraft was killed in the crash. They crashed with such force going at such a high speed that there were not very many big pieces of the plane left. I think one of the people who was working on the recovery said that at biggest, most of the pieces were about 20 centimeters by 20 centimeters in size. And uh, 20 centimeters is about eight inches. Man, that, and they went down fast. If they were at 35, like you said, broke the speed of sound, just falling. Yeah, they were close to breaking the speed of sound. I don't think oh. they actually did. But yeah, they were, they were approaching the speed of sound going directly down, you know, towards the ground or towards the river delta in this case. The plane broke up before it hit the ground? It started to break up. Like the forces being exerted on it were so great that like little pieces, like we've talked about stuff like this before, yeah. you know, aircraft are, are rated to certain speeds, certain, you know, you're supposed to fly them in certain ways, otherwise you could damage them. And uh, this one was flying in such a way that it did start to break apart before the actual impact. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, I don't know. I don't think the report said how many Gs they were experiencing during the dive in the plane, but it probably would have been pretty extreme if they were, you know, basically pointed down at the ground and going close to the speed of sound. So the investigation was carried out by the Indonesian National Transportation Safety Committee. So they're the NTSC. So if you hear me talk about the NTSC, it's the Indonesian investigators. Because normally I say the NTSB, which is the American version. The flight data recorder was recovered by divers on December 24th, 1997. The enclosure was a little damaged, and some of the tape near the right and erase heads was exposed. The data on the tape was able to be read, except for the short length that was exposed, which was like the last 6.3 seconds or so. They found that the last recorded data was recorded at 4.11 and 27 seconds, and estimated the recording stopped at 4.11 and 33 seconds. This was actually about 44 seconds before the radar showed the initial descent for flight 185 mm -hmm. yeah because they ended up impacting uh, at about 4 13 p.m so what happened <laughs> uh well this could be chalked up to damage you know during the crash and maybe from the exposed uh tape mm -hmm. however the unusual thing was that the cockpit voice recorder was found in relatively good condition and this was found on january 8th 1998 mm. the recording included the ground operations and takeoff but the recording stopped at about 405 and 15 seconds about six minutes before the flight data recorder stopped recording. Oh, and it just stopped for no reason? Presumably, I mean, or like... They don't know. Uh, based upon the recording. Right. So it stopped, like I said, six minutes before the flight data recorder and about eight minutes before the impact. So just, there's just no cockpit voice recorder for it. Mm -hmm. Recovery of the wreckage was difficult due to poor water visibility, strong currents, and a lot of the wreckage was buried, you know, by the mud eight mm -hmm. meters below the surface, which is what, like 25 feet. So it's not, you know, it's not at the bottom of an ocean, but it's in like a muddy, silty river delta. Mm -hmm. They've got to go under the water and then, you know, sift through the mud yeah. and find all these small pieces of plane. And early phases of the recovery were done manually by divers who had to search for the wreckage by touch and use ropes to bring it to the surface. Wow. Like I said, I mean, they're just diving down there and just like, you know, trying to reach around and grab through the mud to see if they can find pieces of the plane. Man. After two weeks, they started using a clamshell dredge to help recover pieces of the fragmented wreckage. It's like, you know, that big heavy machine you see that yeah. go under the water, pick up a bunch of mud. Parts of the empennage were found on land. And that's like all the tail part of the plane, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's like sections of the horizontal stabilizer, the elevator, and rudder pieces. Like all of that in the back. They were found to the east of the impact site. 
The aircraft structure debris was examined for evidence of an in-flight fire or explosion, but no evidence of this was observed. A large amount of the wing structure was recovered, with the largest piece of the wing panel being about two meters long. What, what is that, like six or seven feet? Examination showed no evidence of pre-existing corrosion or fatigue on the parts that were recovered. Mm-hmm. Most of the actuators for the flaps and spoilers were recovered, and they all showed to be in the retracted position, which is how they should be when you're flying at cruising altitude. Large fragments of the right and left landing gear beams and the landing gear actuators were recovered, and the examination showed that the landing gear was in the retracted position as well. So, so far, all the pieces they find, it's all correct. Nothing's out of the ordinary. Except for that voice recorder cutting off, except, except for the super sus. That's weird, yeah. All of the fuselage structure was recovered and severely fragmented. Of the oxygen generators that were recovered, none of them showed evidence of activation, which means there was no loss of pressurization. Oh. Right? Because it's like if you lose pressure, the masks are going to drop. People are going to pull to put yeah. their masks on and they would be activated. So there was no loss of pressure, no explosion, no fire. Everything seems to be fine so far. Uh-huh. There was a repair patch that was done in April of 1997 that was just above the floor level and forward to the left-hand passenger door, but the entire patch was found intact and was still attached to the surrounding skin. And like we said before, there's no evidence of depressurization if all of the oxygen generators are intact. Mm-hmm. The engines were severely fragmented, but examination showed that the high-pressure compressor blades were bent in the direction opposite of the engine rotation, indicating that the engines were operating at the time of impact. So they were still spinning, and then when they impacted, they all got bent in the correct direction. The recovered engine casings did not show any evidence of high-energy, uncontained rotating engine hardware, and there was no evidence found of pre- or post-impact engine fire. So again, every single thing that you normally think, like, well, maybe this was broken, or maybe this happened, everything seems to be fine on the plane. Yeah. I mean, everything sounds like someone flew it into the ground. If it was going that fast, and the cockpit recorder was off, and it, there was no, I don't know, that's what it sounds like to me, if I, had to, if I was guessing. Well, it sounds like you might be able to work for the NTSB, but maybe not for the NTSC. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're going to get to that here in a little in a little bit. But you're you're on the you're on the right track, Chris. So, the committee attempted to reconstruct the empennage, which again is the tail assembly part of the plane, to understand the mode of failure and the structural integrity of the flight controls at the empennage area. A wooden structure was constructed to mount parts of the horizontal stabilizer and elevators in their respective positions. The reconstructed tail was examined for evidence of in-flight fire or explosion, but again, none was found. However, they did find fractures that exhibit overload characteristics. It's not known how many of the reversed loading cycles were experienced by the tube structure prior to failure and separation of the outboard stabilizer sections, but the damage and deformations of the major fracture surfaces were consistent with the rapid weakening structure from a number of excessive reverse loadings. So it just, at this point, it sounds like the empennage was being stressed beyond um, the limits of what it should be able to take. And it was starting to fracture because of it. So again, it's like the airplane was operating outside of the parameters it should have been operating in. It was experiencing forces that it was not designed for. Yep. The recovered power control unit in the main rudder was found to be at three degree left rudder deflection, but it could not be determined whether its position reflected the last position before impact. So the rudder was deflected, but they don't know if that was the case when it hit the ground or if that happened because of impact. Yeah. The power control unit for the standby rudder, ailerons, and elevator were also found in deflected positions, but it was impossible to determine their positions before impact as well. There was also no evidence found of any malfunctions in the power control units before impact occurred. We did an episode, I don't remember if it was a test episode or if it was an episode that we actually released of Black Box Down, where we talked about rudder hardovers in Boeing 737s back in the early 90s. There was a period of time where these PCUs were failing in some uh, Boeing 737s, Mm-hmm. And that's why we're kind of covering this here. Just to highlight, there was no evidence of malfunction in these power control okay. units before impact. That was something they looked into because it... Yeah, okay. it, of course. Yeah, this, this had happened with this kind of plane before. But this plane, like I said, was fairly new. This plane was manufactured after they discovered that problem. Oh. It's not like this yeah. plane was manufactured with the problem inherent in it. That problem had already been discovered, fixed, and then a couple of years later, this plane was built. So yeah. this plane in theory, should not have any PCU problems. In listening to the cockpit voice recorder, the conversation in the cockpit was consistent with normal flight operations. The committee thinks that the cockpit voice recorder stoppage could have occurred due to a malfunction in the unit itself or a loss of power to the unit. The entire two-hour recording was found to be normal with no observed anomalies when power was transferred on the ground in Jakarta. Examination of the cockpit voice recorder unit by the manufacturer confirmed that the CVR was functioning properly, 
Therefore, the stoppage of the CVR could be a result of the loss of power to the unit. If there had been an overload or a short circuit, the resulting popping of the CVR circuit breaker in the cockpit would have been recorded as a unique, identifiable sound signature by the CVR. And we've talked about this before. I think we talked about this in the FedEx 705 episode. Someone intentionally tripped the CVR circuit breaker, and we said that you could hear it. Mm. There's like a distinct signature that, uh, that occurs in the CVR when that happens. But in this case, there was no such sound. Is that the easiest way to turn off the voice recorder is trip it? And when you say trip it, is that just like flip the... It's, uh, what does that mean? It's just like a switch. Okay. It's just like a, a breaker that, you, 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 uh, that someone in the cabin has to flip. Because there's no way to turn them off. There's no off button. You should never... There's no reason they should ever be turned off, the cockpit voice recorder or the flight data recorder. Mm-hmm. However, just because you never know what's going to happen or if there's going to be a problem, you know, there is the ability to trip a breaker to turn it off if you need to. Yeah. It's, it's a breaker, not an off switch. Okay. Right. Like when you flip the breaker, it turns off your whole kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you're like, I don't know which switch. You just like flip off every switch yeah. in your breaker box. Except these are all labeled. Probably how we wish our houses <laughs> were labeled. Yeah. A break in the wire supplying power to the cockpit voice recorder could also lead to CVR stoppage without any sound being recorded on the CVR. However, from the limited quantity of wiring recovered, it couldn't be determined if a break in the wiring caused the CVR to stop. Hmm. Six minutes after the CVR stopped, the flight data recorder stopped as well. Uh, and the stoppage could have also occurred due to a malfunction or loss of power. However, because air traffic control could still see the airplane as it was descending, it means the transponder was still working down to at least 19,500 feet. And this occurred after the flight data recorder stopped and the transponder and flight data recorder operate on the same electrical bus. So mm. in theory, if one's working, the other one's getting power as well. So the flight data recorder was determined to be functioning normally until it stopped and the stoppage of the flight data recorder could not be determined from the available date. There's no evidence found that could explain the six-minute time difference between the stoppage of the CVR and the FDR. It sounds like a mystery. It's a mystery. No answers so far, just a lot of questions. Yeah. The committee recreated the crash in a simulator the best they could using air traffic control radar returns as reference. The results showed that any single failure of the primary flight control, such as a hard over or jamming of an aileron or rudder or elevator, did not result in a descent time history similar to the last air traffic control radar points. Hmm. Any single failure of the secondary flight control, such as a hard over or jamming or yaw damper or runaway the stabilizer trim, would not result in a descent time history similar to that of the last air traffic control radar point. The simulation showed that if both these control failures conditions happened, the aircraft would have recovered to normal flight manually. <laughs> so they're going through the process like, what if this failed? What if that failed? It's like, mm-hmm. it didn't descend the same way. And flight would have returned to normal. Manipulation of the primary flight controls without horizontal stabilizer trim would result in a descent time history similar to that of the last air traffic control radar points, but this required a large control column input force and the aircraft was subjected to a loading exceeding 2 Gs. However, if the control column input forces were relaxed, in the simulations, the aircraft will recover from the steep descent due to inherent stability. So they're saying, yeah, if you push down on the flight controls, it would be difficult, but you could make this happen. But if you stopped pushing, then the plane would recover and stabilize yeah, itself. because it's still running. Right, it's still a plane, right? It, everything is working. It should return to stable flight. Among other possibilities, a combination of changing the stabilizer trim from about 4.5 to 2.5 units and an aileron input could result in a descent time history similar to that of the last air traffic control radar points. This simulated descent trajectory would result in the aircraft entering an accelerating spiral and being subjected to a loading of less than 2G. Furthermore, the aircraft would continue in the spiral even when the control forces were relaxed. This would result in a high descent speed and an agreement with the analysis of the breakup of the empennage. So they're saying, you know, if you, besides just pushing the controls down, you could adjust some things. If you adjust the stabilizer trim and use the flight controls, you kind of like descend and start maybe inverting yourself or doing a bank to inversion mm-hmm. so that the plane kind of ends up upside down and then goes straight down. Okay. Which would then cause a spiral and that that would be unrecoverable. But is that visually what happened when they saw it? Did it look like that? They don't know because they only have radar returns, so they can only see the altitude. No one saw it in person. There were people on the ground who saw the impact, mm-hmm. but you know they only saw the very end of it. Now, they didn't see what the plane did up at 35,000 feet. Plus, I mean, the peop- the witnesses, we've talked about this before. Eyewitness testimony isn't always mm-hmm. accurate. People say they see things like, that's not really what happened, though. Yeah. And especially people who don't maybe have a working knowledge of planes or don't understand 
how planes work, like they're you really don't know what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And this plane, of course, was also going very fast when it hit the ground. They only saw maybe the last couple seconds and then it hits the ground. So the committee also examined the cockpit voice recorder in the moments before it stopped. During the flight, uh, an attendant came in the cockpit to serve food and drinks to the pilots and then left. And there were no indications of any other person entering the cockpit. In the last four minutes following the last meal service, there were no sounds associated with the cockpit door opening or closing. At 4.04 and 57 seconds, the captain indicated his intention to go to the passenger cabin. And at 4.05 and 2 seconds, which is 5 seconds later, the captain offered water to the first officer, and at the same time, several metallic snapping sounds were recorded. And it's speculated it's just the sound of the seatbelt buckle hitting the floor. Oh. 13 seconds later, at 4.05 and 15 seconds, that's when the cockpit voice recorder stopped recording. So the last things it hears, you know, there's a flight attendant comes in, for meal service. Mm-hmm. Captain says he's going to go back to the cabin, ask the first officer if he wants water. Then you hear what they think is the captain taking off his seatbelt and the seatbelt hitting the floor. And then that's it. The copy of voice recorder stops recording a little after that. So the captain got up and lo- did they, he didn't, did they hear him leave? I mean, there's really no sounds other than that. So they don't mm-hmm. know. They hear, he says he's going to leave and they hear him take his seatbelt off, but they never hear the cockpit door open because the CVR stops recording. And there's only two people in the cockpit? Yes. At this point, the attendant has left. So it's only the captain and the first officer at this point. And this is a newer plane, so there's no you know, navigator. Yeah. There's, no, there's no third crew member. Right. It's been a slow process coming to terms with the fact that you probably listen to other shows other than Black Box Down. Well, okay. I'm okay with it. I'm proud to say I'm finally at a point where I can recommend another podcast to you. If you're looking for an entertaining and informative new show to add to your rotation, you should check out the Jordan Harbinger Show it's not just any old podcast. I know you're not going to settle for that. You obviously have good podcast taste. Jordan has this undeniable talent for getting his guests to share previously untold stories, thought-provoking insights, and for pulling out tactical nuggets of wisdom. You hear from all sorts of people, hostage negotiators, spies, mobsters, scientists, authors, athletes, all kinds of people. He recently just put up, I think last week, he put up an episode with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, and if uh, maybe that doesn't scratch your itch, uh, you, there's also uh, some past episodes with Kobe Bryant, uh, Dennis Rodman, Uh, Danny Trejo, Matthew McConaughey, Mark Cuban. There is such a wide range of guests. uh, You would not believe it. Jordan Harbinger is easy to listen to, smart and funny, the whole package. It's impossible to find an episode of the Jordan Harbinger show without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and actionable advice that can directly improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With things opening up again, my calendar has filled up really fast. means I don't have as much time to go to the grocery store, which translates to a sad, empty fridge. But thanks to HelloFresh, I'm well-stocked and well-fed. What is HelloFresh? Well, HelloFresh sends fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes or less. Try HelloFresh's quick and easy meals, 15 to 20 minute dinners, breakfast on the go, and more options perfect for your busy lifestyle. I cannot stress how quick it is to make these dishes and how delicious they are. I mean, I find myself like wanting to hold on to some of these recipe cards. I'm like, oh my God, this dish was so good. I need to remember it. Next time it comes back up, uh, there's one I have, what is this, like a silky pasta uh, I don't remember exactly what it's called. It's 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 in my uh, recipe drawer uh, in my kitchen. Uh, but I look at them like anytime I'm looking to pick a HelloFresh meal, I'm like, is this on there? I need to find it. I mean, that's exactly how great the meals are. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14 and use code BlackBoxDown14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's up to 14 free meals plus free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. This episode is sponsored by Raycon. It's summer. The world is moving again. I've been out of the house a lot more, going back to the studio uh, for work, commuting, uh, whether it's for work or play, a lot of us are going to be on the move again. So it's my advice to you is to take Raycons with you, whether you're listening to Black Box Down or checking out another Rooster Teeth podcast, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears can make all the difference. Raycons look and feel great, come in a range of cool colors and with customizable gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit. Where can't you take them, right? You want you need to have headphones if you're traveling on a plane. You don't want to listen to the crying baby in the plane, right? You want to put your Raycons in and listen to your music or your podcasts. Uh, if you're going to go out for a walk in this uh, nice summer weather, uh, you're going to go out to the beach maybe, why not take some Raycons? Uh, look cool in your sunglasses and listen to some tunes. So Raycons offering 
15% off all their products for our listeners. Here's what you got to do. Go to buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. You'll get your 15% off your entire Raycon order. It's such a good deal. You'll want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. Buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. So the committee examined the behaviors and relationship of the two pilots, and it was concluded that there was no difficulties in the relationship between the two. The first officer showed no unusual behavior or financial history. However, the captain had some interesting things come up. There was an incident previously where he pulled a cockpit voice recorder circuit breaker with the intention to preserve a conversation with his co-pilot, but then he reset the circuit breaker before the flight. This was considered a serious incident by management, and he was relieved of his line instructor pilot appointment. So he was an instructor, but because he tripped a, a CVR breaker one time, he was demoted and they took away his instructor status. So he pulled out the voice recorder one time to keep a recording? To uh, keep a conversation private. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh. This was a different flight. Previously, he was speaking mm-hmm. with his co-pilot and he didn't want it recorded. So he pulled a circuit breaker while they were still on the ground, had the conversation and then reset it before they took off. And you're never supposed to do that, right? Yeah. Like I said, there's no on-off switch for this. The only reason they have a circuit breaker is for troubleshooting or if something happens in flight. So he was demoted because of this, because this is a serious offense. It's not supposed to happen. Yeah. So he tried to reverse the decision for his demotion by the management. And although he was upset, the magnitude and the psychological impact could not be determined. Did he say why he wanted to reset it and what conversation was he wanted to erase? That wasn't in any of the documentation, just mm. that he was having a private conversation and didn't want it recorded, which, I mean, maybe not have it on the plane, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> maybe talk about it before you get on the plane or maybe be like, I'm going to tell you about this after the flight. There's plenty yeah. of places you can talk about it and not have a, a recording device. Yeah. So they also looked into his financial history from 1990 to 1997, and it was found that he had accumulated losses from stock market trading between 1993 and 1997 with a small marginal gain in 1997. Analysis of his net monthly income available for discretionary and general out-of-pocket expenses based on a monthly combined gross income of his salary and his wife's salary showed that he had a relatively minor monthly cash shortfall at the time of the accident. So he was spending a little more than he was making right around the time of the accident. His recent behavior was analyzed from statements made by family members, friends, and peers during interviews. Uh, His family reported no recent changes in his behavior Work associates who observed him on the day of the accident and on his most recent flights reported nothing odd or unusual in his behavior. And the NTSC concluded the combination of financial situation and his work-related events could be stressors on him. However, the NTSC could not determine the magnitude of these stressors and its impact on his behavior. Yeah. Hmm. There were some additional... Again, now we're at the point of this episode where there's differing opinions. Okay. I've seen documentaries about this specific incident, and I've seen, we're going to get into what the NTSB says here in a bit. There were other extenuating circumstances that really aren't covered by the NTSC here. There was kind of a stock market downturn around this time. Mm -hmm. And like I said, he had accumulated some losses in the stock market, and he owed a lot of money. That was due the day he was supposed to return to Singapore, like the day of this accident. He had also recently taken out some life insurance, that became active on the day of this accident. It turned out that the life insurance thing was kind of a coincidence. It gets passed off as a coincidence. The life insurance thing was part of a, a mortgage that he was, it was like a standard operating procedure for a mortgage he was getting. He was supposed to have life insurance as a result of that. And it just so happened that it became active this day. So I don't know, it's a coincidence maybe, or maybe he planned it that way. I don't know. It's just really weird that the day a life insurance becomes active is the day that a plane crash that he's flying. Yeah, that's that's pretty suspect. Like, it get it gets written off as being coincidence because it was related to the mortgage, but still it's it's really weird that it happened at this time. It's also really weird he owed a lot of money the day he was supposed to return back to Singapore. Mm. It kind of gets glossed over a little bit. How much money did he lose in the stock market? So he had losses of about 1.2 million dollars. So uh he was pretty behind. Like I said, he was turning it around. He had some marginal gains in 1997, but he'd been losing money for a couple of years. Man. Actually, also, while I was looking this up, I found the conversation he was trying to hide when he popped the cockpit voice recorder earlier. I hadn't seen this when we were doing oh, our research. I didn't, think, I didn't think to look it up. I'm, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked. So apparently what had happened was a few months before this crash, 
he had messed up on a landing approach and the plane that he was piloting had to go around for a second approach. And to cover up his mistake, he had turned off the cockpit voice recorder to try to like erase the recording of what had happened. And it was his co-pilot who turned him in and made a formal complaint to the airline. Oh, he tried to erase his mistake? What? Right. Mm. Which is pretty damning. I, I can't believe this wasn't in... Well, so a lot of this research that we do for this is comes from the NTSC report. Mm-hmm. And as you probably guessed by now, the NTSC does not say that he intentionally crashed the plane. Little spoiler for what's coming up. So the NTSC omits a lot of these facts and we had to go around and like try to find other sources for what was happening and uh, that's why this specific incident was not outlined in the ntsc report i'm actually i'm actually i found this in a wall street journal article right now while i was looking up his financial losses in the stock market he flipped the breaker that time and it popped up on the recording correct i don't know if it popped up but typically when you pop the breaker there will be like a yeah like a, a thing yeah you you see it like when you record you know, we record audio. Obviously, we're recording this podcast. When you unplug an XLR, you know how it, like, it makes that click yeah. and you see like that little spike? It's similar to that. Yeah. I don't know. This, this guy sounds Suspicious, shady. right? So we'll go over some findings here before we, we dig down into this a little more. So the NTSC had uh, their findings here. And like I said before, there was no evidence found of in-flight fire explosion. From a flutter analysis and wreckage distribution study, the empanage breakup could have occurred in the range between 5,000 and 12,000 feet in altitude. The engines were considered to not be a factor contributing to the accident. Examination of the main rudder power control unit, including the servo valve, the yaw damper modulating piston, and the rudder trim actuator, the rudder trim and fuel centering unit, the standby rudder PCU, the aileron PCU, the elevator PCU, basically they all revealed no indications or evidence of pre-impact malfunctions. Uh The CVR stopped recording at 4.05 and 15 seconds, and the FDR stopped at 4.11 and 33 seconds. Examination of the CVR and FDR showed no malfunction of the units. The stoppages could be attributed to a loss of power supply to the units. However, there were no indications or evidence found to conclude on the reason for the stoppage due to the loss of power. The cause of the CVR and FDR stoppages and the reason for the time differences between the stoppages could not be concluded. Weather and air traffic control were not factors contributing to the accident. Based on flight simulations, it was observed that the simulated descent trajectory resulting from any single failure of flight control or autopilot systems would not match the radar data. Yep. Again, they're saying if there was a failure, it doesn't match. Yep. Based on the same flight simulations, it was also observed that the trajectory shown by the radar data could have been, among other possibilities, the result of the combination of lateral and longitudinal inputs together with the horizontal stabilizer trim input to its forward manual electrical trim limit of 2.5 units. So again, they're saying if there were a combination of inputs, this was possible to recreate this kind of dot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. There was no evidence found to indicate that the performance of either pilot was adversely affected by any medical or physiological condition. So again, they were healthy, physically healthy. Mm-hmm. Until the stoppage of the CVR, the pilots conducted the flight in a normal manner and conformed to all requirements and standard operating procedures. Although a flight attendant had been in the cockpit previously, After the last meal service and until the stoppage of the CVR, there was no indication that anyone else was in the cockpit other than the two pilots. In the final seconds of the cockpit voice recorder recording, the pilot in command voiced his intention to leave the flight deck. However, there were no indications or evidence that he had left. Again, like you asked earlier, we don't know. How long was the period from him saying he's going to leave to when it shut off? Like how many seconds? 13. 13 seconds? Yeah, so not a lot of time. Well, but that's a lot of time. If I guess from the seatbelt, presumably, that's, I mean, you could get to the door in like two seconds. Yeah, I mean, depending on how he's seated, he probably had to move his seat back, you know, turn around, stand up. You got to be careful not to hit anything. Hmm. But yeah, conceivably, he would be able to get to the door in 13 seconds or less. Yeah. The pilot in command uh, was involved in stock trading activities, but no conclusions could be made indicating that these activities had influenced his performance as a pilot. But... It's suspicious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm going to read the final remarks here from the NTSC. I had to read these like three times because I I could not believe what I was reading the first time I read this. Like it made me, (laughs) I think my mouth probably was open when I was reading this because it just sounds ridiculous. Uh This is verbatim what the NTSC wrote in their report. The NTSC investigation into the Silk Air 185 accident was a very extensive, exhaustive, and complex investigation to find out what happened how it happened, and why it happened. 
It was an extremely difficult investigation due to the degree of destruction of the aircraft resulting in highly fragmented wreckage, the difficulties presented by the accident site, and the lack of information from the flight recorders during the final moments of the accident sequence. The NTSC accident investigation team members and participating organizations have done the investigation in a thorough manner and to the best of their conscience, knowledge, and professional expertise, taking into consideration all available data and information recovered and gathered during the investigation. Given the limited data and information from the wreckage and flight recorders, the NTSC is unable to find the reasons for the departure of the aircraft from its cruising level of flight level 350 and the reasons for the stoppage of the flight recorders. The NTSC has to conclude that the technical investigation has yielded no evidence to explain the cause of the accident. Ooh, this sounds yeah. like a little kid building themselves up. It's I like know. When you, write a, when you write a report in like I middle school. I was going to say that. It's like someone who wrote a report, but they didn't do any of the research. Or they right. just like, they're like, <laughs> like, you know. We did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I, I was I was baffled when I read this. Like, I would I mean, we, I've read remarks from the NTSB and from other organizations many times on this mm-hmm. on this podcast. I've never come across anything that sounds like this. Like, we had a difficult job, and we did it good. We like, did what? real good. Yeah, we went through everything possible. And that's why I don't have my project to <laughs> turn in to teach. <laughs> that's why I can't answer your questions. <laughs> So there were some recommendations here I want to go through, and then we're going to get into some of the NTSB findings. So recommendations. Undertake a comprehensive review and analysis of flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorder systems design philosophy to be undertaken by aircraft and equipment manufacturers. The purpose of the review and analysis would be to identify and rectify latent factors associated with stoppage of the recorders in flight, and if needed, to propose improvements to ensure recording until time of occurrence. So they're kind of, in my opinion, throwing... CVRs and FDRs under the bus. Yeah. It's their fault. You know, oh, these these recorders, we need to figure out why they fail and make sure they don't fail. Like, well, <laughs> we have a, a pretty clear idea of what <laughs> happened here. It is recommended that to facilitate the recovery of flight recorders after impact into water, a review of the flight recorder's design philosophy be undertaken by the equipment manufacturers to ensure that the underwater locator beacons are fitted to the flight recorders in such a manner that ULB would not be separated from the recorders in an accident. I guess I didn't say this earlier. I omitted this part. The, the beacons became dislodged from the recorders okay. in this incident when they hit the Delta. But they found it. They found it. They still found it. Uh, luckily, like I said, it wasn't out in the, in the ocean, you know, in the really deep ocean. This was in a relatively shallow river, so they were able to find it. It is recommended that a review of the flight crew training syllabi be undertaken by aircraft manufacturers to include recovery from high-speed flight upsets beyond the normal flight envelope. The purpose of developing the additional training is to enhance pilot awareness on the possibility of unexpected hazardous flight situations. So just more training in how to recover a plane that's mm-hmm. out, of, out of control. <laughs> uh-huh. But again, there's no indication that there's any mechanical reason that this plane yeah. was operating outside of its normal flight envelope other than it was someone who probably caused this to happen. Yeah. I think they're being a little... Uh, I don't know. They're trying to distract from the actual incident mm-hmm. itself here. It is recommended that a review of aircraft auto flight systems be undertaken by aircraft and equipment manufacturers to provide all passenger aircraft with auto flight systems that could prevent an aircraft from flying beyond the high speed limit of its flight envelope. It is also recommended that such auto flight systems limit the rate of descent of the aircraft to a certain value that is operationally safe. So this is almost like they want to put controls and limiters on the plane so that it can't be taken outside of its acceptable ranges, but... That's in itself saying that someone did it, right? Well, I think their their assumption is that there was a malfunction on the plane and the plane itself went outside of its limits. Mm. But in my opinion, Mm -hmm. as as a non-pilot, in my opinion, I would never want to have restrictions like this on the pilots because you don't know when they might need to do something out of the ordinary to try to rectify a problem. They might need to do something crazy. Right. We've talked about crazy things that pilots have had to do on this podcast in order mm-hmm. to save lives. And it's like, yeah. you want to have them to have that option. That's why, I, to this day, I still think it's safer to have a human at the controls as compared to a computer. But yeah. obviously, that's not always the case, as we're finding out with this episode. 
So it is recommended that a regional investigation framework for cooperation in aircraft accident investigations be established to enable fast mobilization of resources and coordination of activities to support those states that do not have the resources and facilities to do investigations on their own. Mm. So, like I said, the NTSB also did their own independent investigation. Since this was, you know, a Boeing plane, this was an American-manufactured plane, Mm -hmm. you know, the NTSB is going to be interested to find out to make sure that there's not a problem with these kinds of planes. Now for the real information. (laughs) Now for the... (laughs) So on December 11th, 2000, the acting chairman sent a letter to the NTSC. The letter that they sent included the following paragraph. The examination of all the factual evidence is consistent with the conclusions that, one, no airplane-related mechanical malfunctions or failures caused or contributed to the accident. And two, the accident can be explained by intentional pilot action, specifically, A, the accident airplane's flight profile is consistent with sustained manual nose-down flight control inputs, B, the evidence suggests the cockpit voice recorder was intentionally disconnected, C, recovery of the airplane was possible but not attempted, and D, it is more likely... Yeah, they didn't recover the entire plane. They kind of stopped after after a while. We didn't really get into that either. And D, it is more likely that the nose-down flight control inputs were made by the captain than by the first officer. Mm. So, I mean, it's pretty much like, hey, you're wrong. Let yeah. me bullet point why. And just like going through every single reason uh, why this sounds like the pilot did this intentionally. Okay, we talked about how you, you flip the breaker and then it makes a noise. Did he just yank the... Is there a way to yank the whole recorder out or something? No, they cannot access that because the recorders are in the tail, typically. So then how did he turn it off? They speculate that he tripped the breaker without it having a signature on the recorder. Mm. The NTSB speculation is that he took off his seatbelt, went to leave the cabin, and as he was walking out of the cabin, he tripped it. Then they don't know at that point whether he stayed in the cabin and, you know, incapacitated the first officer... Again, on some of these documentaries, I've seen speculation that he leaves the cockpit to go do something. Then when he comes back into the cockpit, he like tells the first officer like, hey, you know, the flight attendants want to talk to you. Or like he, <gasps> he finds an excuse oh. to get the first officer out and then locks him out. Locks him out and then... Right. There's nothing that can be done. So the thing that like tracks like the, the controls of the plane, he turned that off a little later, right? So, you said there, that's the six minute, right? The discrepancy or... So... The flight data recorder, they speculate, was still operational because, remember, they could, they could see the transponder of the plane. Mm-hmm. And if you had turned the FDR off, then the transponder would have stopped working as well. So let's go over the timeline. Okay. Okay, so at about 4.05 p.m., more or less, the cockpit voice recorder stopped. Okay. I remember impact happened at about 4.13 p.m. Yeah. So this is about eight minutes before impact, the cockpit voice recorder stops recording. At about 4.11 p.m., the flight data recorder also stops recording. There is some damage to the tape head that can explain like the last six seconds or so, but there is still a gap of time and they don't know why. From what I understand, the FDR is on the same electrical bus as the transponder. So like I said, the last time air traffic control was able to see this plane was when I was about 19,500 feet. So Mm -hmm. at least down to that point, it was working, but then... You know, they lose track of it either because it's gone too low or it's going too fast. So maybe at some point there, the flight data recorder also stops working. Okay. But there's no, they cannot definitively give a reason for why that is. What is the thing that keeps track in, of, of like the controls? That's the flight data recorder. Flight data recorder. Yeah. The, so we, we talk about the black box frequently, but really there's, there's two of them. There's the cockpit voice recorder, which records all of the sounds in the cockpit. It's not just what people are saying, it's all the sounds. There's microphones in the cockpit. So that's the CVR. The other part of the black box is the flight data recorder, which records all of the inputs and everything, every system that's going on on the plane. So they didn't see that there was a nosedive or something from that, from before it stopped working? They don't have the entire picture because it did stop at some point. Yeah, okay. So Jeffrey Thomas, who's a a writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, said that, a secret report confirmed that the Indonesian authorities would not issue a public verdict because they feared it would make their own people too frightened to fly. Oh. Santoso Sayogo, who's an NTSC investigator who worked on this case, said that the NTSB opinion was shared by the Indonesian investigators, but they were overruled by their bosses. Oh. Wait, so who released the secret report? It was never released. It just exists internally in Indonesia. But the reporter said there was a secret. Right. They just I don't think it's ever been publicly released. Mm. But the reporter, you know, in speaking with his sources at the NTSC, 
said that it exists, that the investigators know, in their mm-hmm. opinion, the pilot crashed the plane, but their bosses will not let them publicly say that. They had to publicly say it was unable to be precisely determined what caused this crash. If the logic is that they don't want to make people afraid to fly, what is, I mean, just a plane crashing with no reason and no understanding is, that's just as scary as a captain going crazy. I mean, I, I guess like when you say that they have, when they can attribute it to a mechanical problem, even if they can't find what the problem is, they still, you know, wrote up these recommendations. They're like, oh, we're going to do all these things as a result of mm. this to try to make it safer. But you and I know in reading some of these, you know, in our experience, having gone through quite a few of these now at this yeah. point, a, a lot of these are just like smokescreen. Like this doesn't yeah. mean anything. They're still trying to act like they learned something. If it's a pilot suicide, there's nothing you can do about that. What they could do is work on, uh, I don't know, certain processes for preventing that. I don't know. So it's interesting you say that. There is a process to prevent this. Oh. Not every country in the world does this, but in the United States, it's it's changed over recent years. But after September 11th, the policy changed in the United States. Mm -hmm. One pilot cannot be left alone in the cockpit. Uh, I don't know if if you've ever noticed when you're on a plane, if one of the pilots has to come out and go to the bathroom or whatever one of the flight attendants goes into the cockpit. Oh. So there's never one person alone in the cockpit. There's always two. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's, I mean, that's, those are those things that can prevent things like this. Right. So like someone cannot lock the cockpit door and keep people out. You know, if the pilot tries to do that, there's another person who can unlock the door there. Or, you know, if something happens to the pilot and they become incapacitated, the flight attendant can open the door or try to help or do something yeah. so that you don't just have one person. I think, you know, this was a policy that was not something that was adopted worldwide. Mm -hmm. You know, over recent years, more countries have started adopting this policy. But I don't think it's something that happens everywhere yet. Why wouldn't you? That just seems common sense. It's kind of a pain in the butt. Because I don't know if you've ever seen on a plane, like, what, what they'll do is the flight attendants will get, like, a galley cart and they'll block the entrance up there. So it's like, if the passengers can't use the bathroom up front anymore... You know, then you have to have like two flight attendants watching to make sure nobody's trying to storm the cockpit. You got to have another uh-huh. flight attendant in the cockpit. Like it kind of disrupts service, right? It's like yeah. the, the flight attendants are now not doing their other jobs. They have to go and make sure that everything's okay at the cockpit uh-huh. and then, you know, go back to normal. So I could, I could see why people may be re- like, people may think like, oh, you're being overly cautious. There's really no need for this. But as you see, sometimes there is a need for this. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I don't want people being afraid necessarily of this kind of thing. That's one of the big takeaways. This, this kind of policy is a lot more uh, widespread around the world yeah. now, where there have to be two people in the cockpit. Is there a way to unlock the cockpit door at all? Is there any way? Not from the outside, no. For Not security reasons, no. There, there, there yeah. is no way to do that. And that makes sense. That's, yeah. There's nothing you can do to get in there. There's other, I mean, I don't want to spoil other potential episodes in the future, but, I mean, people have tried to get into the cockpit. You know, Even mm-hmm. using, like, the fire axe. It takes a while to get through that, if it's even possible. I'm looking forward to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> so in the aftermath of all of this, Silk Air paid 10000 US dollars compensation to each victim's family, which was the maximum under the Warsaw Convention. There was a lawsuit filed against Boeing mm-hmm. related to the PCU control. Some people, you know, allege that there was a PCU malfunction, which mm. caused a hard over like in some of the other, like I talked about before. Yeah. Boeing settled that lawsuit. I think, no, they did pay an undisclosed amount of compensation out of court. I think they just probably didn't want to bother with it, is what I think. I think that they just looked at, you know, how much is it going to cost to take this trial versus how much compensation do we have to pay? They probably figured paying the compensation... They probably was, don't want the bad press of, like, right. being even... Yeah. They probably just figured it was cheaper just to write a check and settle out of court than to take it to court. Huh. My opinion, I don't know for certain, because, of course, that's an undisclosed compensation. Yeah. A memorial for the victims was erected at the burial site, which is located within the Botanical Gardens near Palembang. Another memorial is located at Chua Chu Kang Cemetery in Singapore. But that's it. Silk Air 185 is an incident with two different conclusions by two different agencies and a secret report Spicy. by one of those agencies. Yeah. <laughs> did, did his wife or his family say anything? I don't think so. No. There, there's a, I mean, there's more, there's a little more to this incident than we got into here. I think a lot of this is maybe like ancillary and unrelated. Mm-hmm. But this, um, this Captain Su Wei Ming was actually a, um, a fighter pilot in the Singapore Air Force. Oh. And he was like a really good fighter pilot. He was, um, 
that, what do they call it? I think they have they have a, an aerial group called the Black Knights. Like, you know, here we have like, what do they call them? Like the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels and stuff like that. Whatever whatever uh, uh, Top Gun the right. group is. He was, he was like in the Singapore version of that called the Black Knights. And, you know, had an illustrious career. But uh, again, this day that this accident happened was the anniversary of an accident where some of his friends died oh. in the Air Force. So again, it's like not necessarily related, but again, it's another weird coincidence that yeah. all lines up on this particular day. And oh. that's also, I think, another reason that NTSB suspects that he could have, he, you know, having been a fighter pilot, a very good fighter pilot, he could have manipulated the controls on this plane to do this kind of inverted dive, which would have caused this rapid loss of altitude that the air traffic control sees. It's even more reason to believe that it was intentional because if he has that training to pull up. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. He he has like a crazy amount of training. This person is a extremely qualified pilot. Mm. So I don't know. Again, that's not directly related to this episode, but just another little tidbit of information. Wow. But that's it. Silk Air 185. Um, kind of a scary one to think yeah. that this was this possible to happen. But like I said, it's not really something that's really possible in the U.S. And a lot more countries are adopting this two people in the cockpit role. So ideally, it's not something that uh, you should ever have to worry about. Yeah. Well, I would like to uh, thank uh, some a couple of people on the Internet, like Ian Whitlock, who's sharing uh, the Black Box Down Facebook page and recommending it to his friends on Facebook. He says, oh, listen to this podcast. It's amazing. I've learned so much by listening. I have fallen in love with aviation because of it. Killer's job, guys. Never stops. Thank you, Ian. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. What about, uh, did you see that uh, that drawing of the rat that I retweeted from Black Oh, Down's yes. Twitter that account? was my favorite. I, I'm, from uh, B? Yes. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I need to, I, I'm going to, we should repost that on Instagram and Facebook if, if that's okay oh, yeah. with the, the poster. Yeah, I only uh, retweeted it on Twitter because that's where it was. But yeah, you're right. We should put that kind of stuff on the other platforms. This kind of things you're missing. Uh, yeah. If you're not following us on social media at Black Box Down Pod, yeah. If you're the rat's like my favorite part of the plane, and also yeah. <laughs> there's a drawing of that. Uh, what was what was the username? Her name listed was B B E E. Yeah, it's really good. Anyway, so thank you everyone who's who's uh, posting and sharing on social media. That really that really helps us keep making the show. Yeah, we appreciate it. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back in next week. Bye bye. bye.